Nobody wants to get spit on. <laughs> Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Skylight Books. Thanks for coming out on this fine, warm Wednesday evening. Starting to feel like spring already. Um, I would like to remind anyone who has a cell phone to go ahead and put it on the quiet mode so we don't have an inopportune, you know, like interruption in the reading. Um, and I also wanted to let you guys know um, we've got these pink flyers that tell about our events. We are on the last event of the first half of February and we're jumping to the backside. So if anyone has any interest, uh, go ahead and pick one of these up. Um, we've got a couple of really good things coming up. Uh, next week on Friday, we've got Lisley Tenorio, who's another, um, another San Francisco writer. And we've got a couple uh, who are here with us tonight. So that would be a good one to check out. Um, another one coming up, we've got Steve Erickson on February 22nd, two weeks from now. Um, and if you like the kind of fiction that we're going to be hearing from here, uh, you may also enjoy that one. Um, he's another LA writer. So good stuff coming up. Pick up a pink flyer. Um, and... I think that's all I'm going to say for right now. Um, tonight we've got three writers here. We're going to have them not all read at the same time. Uh, I hope you guys appreciate that decision. Um, and I'm going to do little introductions between them. So I'm going to start off with our first reader uh, and, and let you know a little bit about her. And then uh, we'll go from there. So um, the, our first reader tonight is Trini Dalton. She is currently, she's originally from LA, um, currently back living here. This is, I think, um, five, her fifth book maybe, uh, in terms of things that she's contributed to, edited, written. Um, journalist has been quite involved in the music world and in the art world and writing journalism and all of that. So she's certainly um, a familiar face to us here at Skylight and around Los Angeles. And her current book is called Baby Geisha. It's from $2 Radio, which is a, a, a great small independent publisher. Um, and I'm not even going to go any further than that. I'm just going to hand it on over to Trini. So please welcome Trini Dalton. Well, I better grab my second water bottle. I might drink a lot of water tonight. I'm a little bit hoarse, so I'm going to work my, work my hardest to, be, um, <clears throat> to read clearly. How's it going? Thanks for coming on a weeknight, Wednesday, Wednesday night. Um, <clears throat> I'm reading from uh, my new story collection, and I think the, um, the other night I kind of read little bits of different stories, so tonight I thought I'd vary it a little and read um, an, a shortened edit of a long, a long story in here um, called Pura Vida, and it's a 15-minute edit, so... Um, Hopefully it won't run too long. I might break a couple times just to explain what scenes are missing. Otherwise, hopefully it'll work. Pura Vida. Sloths? I'm on it, Joanne said, hanging up with her editor. She was on the way to her bedroom, practically sprinting towards the closet door to read the travel list she kept tacked up there. Ten essentials for her valise. Big round sunglasses, steno pad, pens, phone charger. She made this list after discovering that Joan Didion kept one. What would Joan do, she often asked herself. This assignment entailed flying a few countries south to pet sloths, and she vowed to cover the sloth story as if her life was on the line. 
Joanne had just finished a feature on Alaskan giant vegetable farming. She was proud of it, though it was no Pulitzer nominee. This time, her editor assigned her a weekend in Costa Rica, not to cover the annual Ridley sea turtle breeding like every other sentimental glossy on the planet, but to visit a sloth hospital. This clinic adopted orphan sloths who in turn performed human therapy. Joanne's job was to discover how these sloths healed humans with their dark, charming eyes. Packing for the trip would have gone smoothly were it not for Joanne's roommates, her two pesky sisters. They were unemployed performance artists who at the most inopportune times tainted Joanne's dutiful existence. That evening before the flight, Joanne packed toiletries in the bathroom. This movie's so good, you don't even have to watch it, Vivi yelled from the living room. <laughs> Joanne put her doll-sized bottles down to go see what was so good. But Vivi started playing jazzy clarinet over the film's dialogue, so Joanne couldn't tell what was happening. What's the film about? About, Joanne asked. Vivi tooted out a mellifluous but unintelligible woodwind answer. Joanne stomped back into the bathroom to pack the hell out of her toiletries. Vivi had the ethereally disjunctive habits of those drunk on bubbly. People assumed Vivi was an airhead, but Joanne knew it was a massive cover-up. Vivi had long blonde hair that frequently changed to red, brown, or orange. Currently, one side of her hair was shoulder length, while the other side was shaved, like vintage Cindy Lauper. Joanne's unwavering dark, dark brown Didion bob dulled in comparison. <clears throat> What are you doing, Dina called into Joanne a few minutes later, coming in from the porch stoop to watch Joanne pack. Getting rid of these hairbrushes, Joanne said. Her toiletries were adrift in drawers, crammed with her sister's junk. It was delaying her task's completion. Why do we have so many? How many do we have, Evie called in, taking a clarinet break. Their brownstone was small and eavesdropping was inevitable. Just enough, Dina called back, leaning on the bathroom's door jam, to host a salon, Vivi asked. Exactly, Dina yelled. I'm throwing these out, Joanne said. Yeah, about that, Dina said. We might want those brushes later. Actually, can I have one right now, Vivi asked. By now, Vivi was loitering in the door jam, too. Joanne slapped a brush into Vivi's hand. I'm chucking the rest. Don't you have anything better to do than to throw our cherished possessions out, chore boy? Asked Vivi. Why don't you try going on a date? Joanne rarely had luck recruiting her sisters to perform organizational tasks. Chore boy was code that meant Joanne was passive-aggressively bossy. But Joanne figured someone had to keep these jokers in line. Joanne was 30, while Vivi and Dina were 24 and 26, going on 12. Journalism is extremely social, Joanne snapped back. No, it's not, Dina said, and you don't have to write a report about us, so stop counting our brushes. You are not our mom, Vivi added, brushing her hair. Can we not do this now, Joanne asked. Their ambitious mother had also been a second-rate journalist who had never won her Pulitzer. These three girls agreed on one thing, that their single mom, who had taken even the lamest assignments out of financial desperation, and who in the year before, years before the sexual revolution had voiced constant frustrations about sexist news coverage and low pay, had lived a Sisyphean existence that none of them wished to emulate. Their mom had ta been taken prematurely by cancer, and Joanne wanted retribution in the form of major journalism awards. The room grew sullen. Joanne pulled a drawer out of its cabinet, dumped the brushes on the floor, marched off to her bedroom, and slammed the door shut. She remained holed up until the next morning when she left without saying goodbye. Um, skipping the air travel and 
the moments when um, Joanne realizes she has completely neglected to plan research for the trip. As the plane landed in a strip shaved out of banana plantation that looked like Earth's bikini wax, Joanne took notes about the setting in her spiral notebook for her first draft due in five days. Off the plane, she secretly hoped her cell phone wouldn't work in the jungle, but she was compelled to try it and the reception was excellent. She had several work-related messages. Joanne, call me ASAP. Joanne, guess what? You've been invited to lecture on sloth healing. I've already accepted on your behalf. Joanne, where are you? Call me back. The speed with which her editor relayed messages seemed ludicrous at this podunk airport. Two benches, a small attendant booth, a soda machine, and the one plane landing strip. Pressure to come back with shamanic jungle revelations, wearing a sloth claw necklace, was insinuated in these brief voicemails. What did these people expect from a woman who pets a sloth for a few minutes? Hailing a cab, she thought again of her sisters, hanging loose, probably reciting spoken word poems to each other in a shared bubble bath. Joanne fumed, knowing this article would be paying their rent. And she travels to the lodge. <clears throat> Checked into the lodge, a series of teak buildings completely constructs, constructed on stilts. Joanne wasn't feeling the boggy, central lowland rainforest. Lanky trees dripped with vines, and a trail of leafcutter ants marched lime green sails on their backs across her balcony railing. Maybe the ants were headed for the river a few hundred yards away to windsurf on their leaf bits. Nestling into her porch hammock, Joanne recalled her favorite essay, In Bogota, in which Didion nails over an overwhelming wilderness. On the Colombian coast, it was hot, fevered, 11 degrees off the equator with evening trades that did not relieve but blew hot and dusty. Joanne, swinging, got out her steno pad to compare what she had written so far. Sloth, what is it? We all want to know. Is it a furry mammal or one of those half mammal, half bird animals like a platypus? Research sloth biology. She slugged water from a plastic bottle. She pictured herself in a tank top and walking shorts, getting hugged by cuddly bear things with long arms. She was so going to get a Pulitzer for this. People in New York would not believe she got to pet sloths. Plus, the receptionist told her that Jane Goodall had worked nearby with howler monkeys. Flipping through a field guide, she found the sloth page and tried to memorize the sloth's face shape. I'm skipping a pretty extensive one-night stand that she has with an entomologist named Raphael. <laughs> Sorry. It's kind of like the sex scene. Sad to take it out. Waking up feeling jaded and loose, Joanne groggily stared at a pair of charming parrot portraits striped by sunlight leaking through the slatted window blinds. Raphael's penis was burned on her mind, small, warm, and flaccid like a freshly killed green snake. New York has ruined me, she thought. I'm impossible to impress. So what if Raphael's penis looked more like a deceased baby boa than a live daddy? Dragging herself to the breakfast bar, she sat jet-lagged with her glass of juice. The marignon at the juice bar, also known as cashew apple, excited her more than Raphael. Finding love is more important than exotic tropical fruit, she told herself. Maybe her sisters were right. I'm going to ask the sloth what's wrong with me.
The clinic two huts over had, two, had six two-toed sloths and two three-toed sloths that, kept tangled, that slept tangled in branches inside a giant stilted A-frame. Joanne entered through a screen door into a mini forest of fur balls. She was only vaguely aware of their sluggish presence. She hoped Raphael wasn't there. A lady in khaki came in from another room to greet her. I'm Nancy, she said, head sloth nurse. Joanne introduced herself and her agenda. Nancy took a step back at Joanne's boisterous demand to hold a sloth pronto. That might be tricky, Nancy whispered. They sleep all day. What about the therapy, Joanne asked. She pictured a sloth with a clipboard, taking notes while his patient, reclining on a couch, expressed his emotions. People pet the sloths to rejuvenate, Nancy said. Come back at sunset. A sloth clinic, Joanne realized, was badly suited to her impatient nature. She hated waiting around. Even in her sleep, Joanne was either on the way or paused briefly to observe, annotate, and resume. Her dreams were as tidily packed as her suitcases. A dozen little stories in each dream, like bald pairs of socks, ready for Joanne to flip through and meld into jaunty magazine articles. Waiting around was wasting time. Wasting time implied letting life pass by without turning it into a story. What was she supposed to do all day while she waited for the sloths to wake up? Seduce more strangers? What else was there for her to sum up? Joanne killed time in the bromeliad garden, but being, being alone wasn't making her feel better. It was true. She did take up projects that guaranteed her a solo experience. She thought of Raphael again and the stick bug. Trying to connect with people made Joanne feel marooned. Why was that? Seated on a rock bench beneath a monstrous and majestic staghorn fern, she wished for a travel companion. Not a stranger, but a person she had history with. A beautiful fern like this, then, would have been more momentous as an object of worship. She recalled feeling similarly in Alaska, wishing she had a friend or lover there to share that moment when she first beheld a shark-sized carrot. Witnessing the world's wonders alone made Joanne increasingly doubt reality and also undermined her belief that her writing could reflect these brushes with beauty accurately. Since no one was there for this reality check, she conjured up that clipboard sporting th sloth therapist. Get a drink of water. <clears throat> tongue tied. While I'm off researching holding phone conference called, she told Dr. Sloth, Vivi and Dina slug bottles of sake during a samurai film fest or dress up like ragamuffins to shake, hall shake down dance hall moves. I hate spoiling their fun, but they piss me off. The sloth was confused. You obviously care about them, he said. Mom worked herself to the bone for nothing, she said. It isn't fair for my sisters to take an opposite, irresponsible tack. She, saw to, she thought of their most recent fights over Joanne's refusal to taste test sophisticated tea blends or to get a makeover. She was constantly under deadline. Thus, they always came to an impasse. Traveling was Joanne's only defense. While globetrotting, she could remember her sisters fondly from afar. She hoped that loving them during crises, narrowly averted plane crashes or fantasy sloth conversations, for instance, psychically substituted for actually facing her irreconcilable relationships. Take up a social sport like volleyball, said the sloth. <laughs> 
Something you can play with your sisters in crowded Brooklyn parks where zillions of other people play those same sports like sports zombies. Okay, Joanne would commit to something as boring as volleyball for her sisters. Vivi and Dina were so nauseatingly athletic. After sunset, the cloth clinic was bustling, or so Joanne would write in her article. Really, four kids in a hut hogged sloths while slung in cushiony white hammocks that looked like burritos. To re-enter the hospital at dusk, Joanne had pulled rubber galoshes on over her sneakers so as not to track mud in from other parts of the forest. Sloths are sensitive to bacteria, Nancy told her. Joanne wrote this down. Yes, but is there a sloth I can hold, Joanne asked. It was her second day in Costa Rica. She was flying out morning after next, and she hadn't even touched a sloth yet. She was really getting stressed. I'll check to see if any of the sloths feel like meeting someone new, Nancy said, wandering off into another room. She came back in. Not yet. Why don't you have a look around? Who's healing who, Joanne wondered. But there comes a time when one has to be for humanity or against it. The sloths certainly weren't to blame. A magazine sent their writer down to bond with sloths, and no sloths were offered. Where's my damn sloth, Joanne wanted to scream. She pictured Vivi getting sloth attention without even having to ask. The harder I try, she said, she thought, the less I make things happen. Joanne needed to get with the humans if she wanted any chance with the sloths at all. The disconnect was unbearable. Joanne marched down a short corridor to see the only other room in the clinic. There were more hammocks, four more people holding sloths. No one spoke. They were swinging and hugging their rented pets. The scene was infantile. Human rocks, humans rocked in their burrito cradles tucked under tan, fuzzy covers. Joanne had nothing better to do than to watch. While at first she felt trapped in an exposed way, like a pinned beetle, she moved her shoulders in small circles, easing her tense muscles, then leaned against the wall, slipping her pen and steno pad into her pocket. She mentally noted the demure noise of hammock swaying and implored herself to write this down later, still unable to capitulate to a restful moment. Acquiescence was not in her vocabulary. She'd never considered the idea that when one can't move, there are still ways out. Forced to sit with her feelings of captivity and helplessness, she managed to locate a certain comfort in her lack of options. Nothing was happening here. She had to get this piece done and she was safe in a hut surrounded by sloths. She was not lost in the jungle being tracked by a jaguar. What really, she asked herself, is so bad? Her feeling of ensnarement shifted slightly to make room for a flash of controlled relaxation, as if Joanne was muffled in a womb. Nothing was okay. She could write about that nothing later on if she had to. Impatience was the snag, not the sloth torpor. This was her introduction to calm. Nancy entered the room and handed Joanne a sloth. Hold him tight, she said, and don't rub his fur the wrong way. The sloth was really friendly. He smiled at Joanne as she noticed how his coat went backwards, up his arms, instead of towards his fingers. She, she stroked his bristly matted hair from his hand to his shoulder. That's his camouflage, said the nurse. It makes him look like moss. Sloths actually grow moss in their coats. They're living ecosystems. Joanne wanted to be an ecosystem. <coughs> the sloth hugged Joanne and gave her a quick dry lick on the neck. He likes you, Nancy said. He'll sleep with you now if you want. <laughs> Hoisting the sloth over her shoulder like Santa's toy sack, she plopped down in a hammock and let the animal sprawl across her torso. Joanne couldn't tell if the sloth was awake or asleep. He was in some in-between state. Time grew prehistoric, reverting into a previous eon. 
These sloths were living in some type of minus time, exuding a rejuvenating lethargy. Joanne was not worried, right now, about her sisters or about tomorrow. The sloth expected nothing from her and gave nothing in return, gave a great and beautiful kind of protracted nothing, one that Joanne wanted to wrap herself in like a fur coat. Swamped in sloth, Joanne inhaled and noticed he smelled like old piano and white cheddar popcorn. Thanks. So we'll do questions at the very end. So if you're, <laughs> write them down on your little steno pads if you've got any that are specific for Trini. Um, so next up we have got Stephen Beachy, um, who's going to be reading from his newest novel, Boneyard. He's got a couple under a couple of others under his belt, uh, in addition to novellas and short fiction that's appeared in uh, many places, including Bomb Magazine, Chicago Review, um, New York Times Magazine, New York Magazine, etc. So he's certainly been around. Uh, he also is a graduate of the, uh, the Iowa Writers Workshop, grew up in Des Moines, Iowa, which probably means nothing to anyone but me, but represent. Um, so I'm going to stop yammering on and uh, invite Stephen Beachy up. <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. Um, I love reading at Skylight. Skylight's the best bookstore in LA. It's fabulous. And it's great to be here reading with Josh and Trini, who are both fantastic writers. You should all buy their books. Um, Josh was actually a student of mine in the MFA program at, at the University of San Francisco five years ago or something like that in a class called Contemporary Experiments in Fiction. So it's kind of like, I'm kind of like a proud father or something. Is did I just say that? That's really kind of gross. I'm sorry. Okay. okay. Josh is touched. So it's, it's thrilling to me to be here with both of them. Um, so I'm going to read from this book, Boneyard. Um, I'm not really a bag lady, but I have props for the reading because, okay, it's kind of complicated. Let me try to explain. Um, so, I, I didn't really write this book, or I didn't really write most of this book. Most of this book was written by a very disturbed Amish boy named Jake Yoder that nobody has met but me, and some doubt his existence. Um, so what I'm going to do, he, he wrote most of it, but there's also footnotes from Stephen Beachy, me, and a prologue from me, and also from um, the evil editor, Judith Owsley Brown. We don't get along very well. We have sort of combat through our footnotes. So I'll be reading uh, sort of my introduction, and then Judith's, and then some of Jake's text, so, so you can keep it straight. Okay. So when I'm Jake, you know, I, I have the Amish hat, right? And when I'm Judith, Judith is a blonde, so. So when I'm Judith, I, I have the wig. Okay. Um, and then when I'm me, Stephen Beachy is partial to these like shades. So that's that's when I'm me. Um, so I'll just start, and I think it will maybe become a little clearer as I read. Okay. So this is a note from the author. Although my name is on the cover of this book. The book's actual author is a boy, 
I'll call him Jake Yoder, although that isn't his real name, I met in 2006 when he was 14 or maybe 15 years old. I've written a fictionalized version of my encounters with Jake in my forthcoming novel, Glory Hole, where he appears as Amos, but this is probably not the place to scrupulously disentangle the fictional version from the truth, and anyway, a lot of the details have by now become confused in my own mind. I met Jake while I was working on an article about the shooting in the Amish schoolhouse in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. When I arrived in Pennsylvania the weekend after the shooting, Jake Yoder was also visiting Lancaster County. It was through his cousin, an ex-Amish rocker, that I first made contact with Jake. Jake told me he was there for the funeral of his sister, one of the shooter's victims, but I also heard that he was only there because he was on tour with his cousin's band, Wrath of God. According to Jake's cousin, Jake was an only child. Should I believe anything he told me? He told me he was born into an Amish family. He told me his father had died in an accident on the road when Jake was very young. His father's horse and buggy was smashed by a wayward SUV. Jake claimed it was a hybrid. Given the time frame, however, I don't think that's possible. He told me that a few years later, his mother left her Amish family, that she took Jake and his imaginary sister along as she ran off with some man. The details about this man were always vague. Was he an evangelical preacher, a police detective, a train conductor? Jake once told me that his mother was kind of like Nico, the German singer, composer, fashion model, and Warhol superstar. <laughs> but I don't know if he was talking about a physical or psychological resemblance. Um, at some point, probably when Jake was 10 or 11, she drowned herself. It was sometime after his mother's suicide that he wrote the stories that make up this book. He told me he wrote them when he was in the sixth grade, attending a public school in Des Moines, and that they were the result of creative exercises he was encouraged to do by his teacher when he scored 100% on his spelling tests, which, according to Jake, he always did. I'm having trouble reading with these shades. <laughs> The, the settings of his stories vary from his public school to Amish farms, mental institutions, and prisons, settings which unsurprisingly, unsurprisingly blur into each other. Um. We met on four different occasions in October and November of 2006, although in my novel, Glory Hole, these are compressed into only two. The last time we met was in an abandoned building that had once been used as an orphanage. It was a cold night, and Jake had built a fire in the old fireplace. I'd read his entire manuscript at that point and was ready to discuss the stories, but I wasn't prepared for his own change of heart. As he roasted marshmallows, gazing dreamily into the fire, often letting the marshmallows crisp well past the golden brown stage into lurid blackened husks, he explained to me that his stories had somehow caused the shootings at Nickel Mines. Having convinced himself that his stories were not only evil, but magical, he threw the entire manuscript onto the fire and ran wailing into the night. Despite my best efforts, I've never seen Jake again, although I've spoken to him on the phone. I was able to salvage his manuscript, but with significant portions of every single page charred and blackened so that sentences or whole paragraphs were completely illegible. Um, let me actually show you the original manuscript. Here, see, the, the original manuscript. Um, that's Jake's manuscript. Um, 
Shortly after the night on which he ostensibly tried to destroy his manuscript, and it has occurred to me that my presence there was not incidental, and that, like Kafka's, Jake's desire to destroy his work was ambivalent at best, Jake went back to live with his grandparents and was baptized in the Amish church. Like Isidore Ducas, Joris Karl Wiesmans, and Hugo Ball before him, Jake renounced his evil literary experiments and retreated into a traditional form of Christian faith. Of course, nobody is much interested in Lotremo's Song of the Good, Wiesmans' late novels about Catholic faith, or Ball's post-data studies of Christian mystics. When I last spoke to Jake, I asked if he was writing anything at all, and he confessed that he'd published a short piece under a different pseudonym in the Amish magazine Family Life. Although he now doesn't approve of his own writing or of literature in general, Jake has given me permission to do whatever I want with his manuscript as long as I don't publish it under any of his names. As a practicing member of the Amish church, the sort of recognition he might achieve as an author could only be understood as sinful, self-aggrandizing egoism. When I last spoke to him, he did admit, however, that he still reads Borges at times, whom he considers a godly man. Um, I have done my best to recreate Jake's text based on the charred pages and my memory of the original, although I'll be the first to admit that the process has often required the use of my own invention. Um, so that's my sort of introduction to Jake's text. And then my evil editor, Judith Owsley Brown, has her own editor's note at the beginning of the text. Okay. Yeah, pretty stunning, isn't it? Um, okay, Judith. I need some water to do Judith. <clears throat> when this unusual manuscript was presented to me, I was not familiar with Stephen's work. I was, perhaps, vaguely aware that he had broken the story of one of those imaginary writers who haunted the edges of America's literary life with some fervor during the Bush years. See New York Magazine, October 10, 2005. Given that connection, I was more trusting, I suppose, of his own discovery of a kind of idiot savant, a young Rembo, if you will, lurking among the old odor Amish. In my conversations with Stephen, he was entirely convincing and consistent about his encounters with this boy and adamant about the boy's existence. Since Stephen was, in any case, proposing that we publish the work in question under his own name, the fact that we could not confirm the existence of Jake Yoder posed no great ethical or legal dilemma for our esteemed press. The unlikely story of the precocious Amish boy roused my own journalistic curiosity, however. The text itself hardly seems like the work of a child. It includes a whole array of unlikely references for a 12-year-old boy, even if we take into account that easily 50% 50, 50 of the text of the charred original is missing, and that some of these references might be a result of Stephen's invention. Stephen provided me with the boy's real name, making me promise not to reveal it, but not an address. He claimed the boy refused to divulge this, even to him. Although there are only an estimated 240,000 Amish living in the US, the boy's real name was little help, given the maddening repetition of particular surnames among the Amish, such as Yoder, Miller, Fisher, Stoltzfus, and Beachy. <laughs> It's true. Since the Amish don't have telephones, and since Jake ignored my friend requests on Facebook, there was no way to track him down. Stephen himself claimed that the only way to reach him was to leave a message with an, with an ex-Amish cousin, which I did. If I was lucky, I was told, Jake would give me a call. Then why, a discerning reader must wonder, would we agree to publish the book at all? 
The novel would certainly be of considerably less interest if not written by a 12-year-old Amish boy. Although our press champions work falling outside the parameters of mainstream fiction, this novel, if considered as the work of a sane adult, would be considered excessive and self-indulgent by any reasonable critic. <laughs> Isn't she horrible? Still, the text does offer an opportunity to help readers make sense of a culture that most Americans are completely unfamiliar with outside of Hollywood portrayals in movies like Witness and in short-lived reality shows. Such mercenary distortions fueled by our culture's vulgar desire to see the innocent corrupted and unassuming rural people paraded before our jaded sensibilities like so many monsters in a geek show are hardly valuable sources of ethnographic information. And yet where can we turn? Moreover, in the process of conducting my own due diligence, I came to consider equally compelling possibilities for the origin of the text, possibilities that began to seem more and more likely the closer I examined it. With the help of my elucidating notes throughout, I believe these possibilities will become clear to all but the most obtuse or willfully naive readers. If nothing else, I am convinced it is a work that will, in years to come, prove to be of great psychological interest, just as the works of de Sade, Genet, and the anonymous author of Go Ask Alice have revealed fascinating landscapes to those willing to forgive their stylistic excesses. One could say that it is in the spirit of the original Enlightenment project to shine light upon the darker corners of the human mind so as to better understand ourselves and to therefore forge a more benevolent social order that I humbly present the text that follows. Judith Owsley Brown, First Chorus Press. So, um, Basically, of course, Judith's position is that I'm mentally ill. She thinks that like, I'm a multiple personality and that I really believe that Jake exists, but he doesn't. And she sort of lays that out in her footnotes. And I, of course, argue that he does exist because he does. Um, there's a, I'm, I'm sort of vindicated. There's a, there was a group of documentary people who, who made this uh, sort of investigation into the reality of Jake Yoder's existence. It's up on Facebook if you feel like Google Stephen Beachy YouTube. I mean, not on Facebook, it's on YouTube. If you Google Stephen Beachy YouTube, it'll come up. There's another Stephen Beachy whose dog is wearing a Red Sox cap or something like that, but it's not that one. It's the one with the Amish boy. Um, and, you know, there's, there's some, some really... Um, convincing testimony from, from very credible witnesses, including an ex-Amish girl named Esther, um, in the YouTube video if you want to check it out. Okay, so now I'm going to read some of Jake's text, just a little bit, and then I'll turn it over to Josh. Okay. I am only a boy in a city full of trees, but every night I journey. While the other children of the city lie asleep and dreaming, I travel through the blue moonlight or the hushed severe dark if there is no moon. In the moonlight, our city looks like it's been infused with a luminous powder from another world. Without the moon, it is just a shabby darkness of houses and trees under the permanent haze of sky. There are no people and no cars in the night, but sometimes there is one car that slows down as it passes me by, as if checking me out. Although the name of our city is River City, for many years the river was hidden away. You never saw it. 
It is still difficult to get there, even though it flows now right through the middle of town. You must travel down into the bad part of town, behind some warehouses and barely utilized malls, where there is a parking lot full of old school buses. Then there is a maze of gravel roads and abandoned industrial equipment, and finally there are so many trees. You have to hike some distance through the trees, but I have been there. I do not remember it exactly, but I have been there. Another paperboy, Johnny G, has disappeared from our city, and nobody knows where to find him. I am just a boy, and so it is not clear to me what all the possibilities are. The most probable solutions to this mystery are not discussed explicitly in the newspapers I deliver. Every spring, the river rises and seeps into the earth and into the walls of our basement and into our home and soaks the pile of trash that we keep there. Our basement full of trash is a mystery. It is my parents' trash, and they love it, I believe, in some new way. But this is not my concern. I deliver my papers every night, and someday I will buy a moped. <laughs> I sleep. Deep in the night, my alarm goes off. I lie there for a moment in the quiet of my room. I deliver the papers, and then I sleep some more. I believe that our house is sinking ever so slowly into the earth. The ceiling of the kitchen is rotten, and the furniture is rotten, and the trash in the basement is rotten, and so I believe that to love means to allow something to rot. I am just a boy, and I'm not yet capable of discriminating between the dreams that people turn into places and what is real. I look around me and I think, this is real, this is all the real, this is all that is real. I do not know why the river was hidden for so many years, or why it is still so hard to find. Everything else is discussed here in the full light of day. The disappearance of the paperboy, Johnny G, and the dirty habits of the people who live in the bad part of town, although these things are discussed carelessly, as one might discuss the curly hairdos of our women, their shapeless baggy sweaters, the weather with its painful heat and its painful cold, talking, 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 without ever getting to some root. Only the old people know about the sources of our pleasures, the ground of our suffering, for they are always dreaming. The blinds are closed, but when I ring the doorbells, they rise, sleepwalking, and let me in. They give me crumpled bills for the newspapers I deliver, and they tell me things before groping blindly for their sofas to lie down and dream some more. They smell like baby powder. Somebody is muttering on their radios, too quiet to be understood. It is the old ones who call our river city Des Moines, which is French for the innards, or the mazes, or the mounds. Um, you know, I think I'm just going to read one of Judith's evil footnotes, um, and then that will be it. So Jake's stories are kind of like, uh, at least the first half of the book, they're, they're sort of like these weird fairy tales. Um, Oh, I need the wig. It's fallen. <laughs> it's fallen back. Okay. So Judith's... So uh, Jake is always writing about this disappeared paper boy named Johnny G. All right, so... Um, uh, Judas footnote says, the repeated references to Johnny G suggest the author's familiarity with the story of Johnny Gosh, a Des Moines paper boy who disappeared while doing his Sunday morning paper route <clears throat> on September 5th, 1982. He was 12 and one of the first missing children to have his picture put on milk cartons. 
This is all true. He was never found, although rumors have circulated about his possible whereabouts for years, e.g. that he was involved in an Omaha boy prostitution ring allegedly run by high-ranking Republican operative Sorry, Lawrence E. King. See the Franklin cover-up, Child Abuse, Satanism, and Murder in Nebraska, DeCamp, 1992. The Yorkshire TV documentary, Conspiracy of Silence, 1994. More recently, it was claimed that Republican blogger Jeff Gannon, who was revealed to be a male prostitute, was actually the adult Johnny Gosh. Readers might wonder why a young Amish boy writing sometime between 2003 and 2006 would be obsessed with a paper boy who went missing in 1982, or would be interested in the archaic concept of a paper boy at all. Following widely publicized disappearances such as that of Johnny Gosh and another less famous boy, Eugene Wade Martin, who disappeared in Des Moines in 1984, newspapers stopped sending children out in the middle of the night or any time at all to deliver their papers. By a strange coincidence, Stephen also comes from Des Moines and would have been a teenager himself at the time Johnny Gosh disappeared. He has also written extensively about paper boys. See the Whistling Song, 1990. <laughs> It behooves me to withhold judgment on the literary merits of Stephen's work, although I will say that the publisher's weekly review, which found his first novel unbearably thick with metaphor and ersatz profundity, was not unfair in its appraisal. <laughs> oh, that Judith. But there are many obvious clues to the nature of his relationship with Jake Yoder within his earlier writing. <clears throat> in one interview floating around the web, now for some reason vanished. He admitted to having delivered papers himself when he was in the sixth grade. The simple fact would probably be enough for most truth-loving readers to label Jake Yoder a hoax or even a fraud. I don't believe this case is as simple as that. I remain convinced that Stephen himself believes in the existence of the precocious child. Okay, so that's it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Stephen. And now we are on to our, our third guest this evening. Um, this is ne next up is Joshua Moore. He uh, has published three books with $2 Radio, uh, all of which are worth reading. Uh, the latest is called Damascus. It features somebody named No, no Eyebrows, somebody named Shambles. Uh, dive bars, Santa Claus, all the best stuff. Uh, if any of you have ever been to the drawing room over on Hillhurst, it kind of reminds me of Damascus, so if anyone needs some place to go after the reading, I would suggest that for ambiance. Um, I'm not going to talk too much. Uh, Oprah liked one of his books. That's kind of cool. Uh, many of us here at Skylight liked his books as well, which I think is maybe cooler in my opinion. Um, anyway, without further ado, please welcome Joshua Moore. Hello there. Wow, Trini and uh, Stephen did such a remarkable job. Just let's give them another hand and say thank you. And as I'm diving in, I want to embarrass uh, our MC, Emily, a little bit tonight. Because in addition to doing a splendid job uh, curating the events here at Skylight, she also works as an editor at my publishing house. And she gave me some absolutely wonderful insights as I was putting Damascus together. Uh, and her help um, really tied the room together, uh, as the dude would say. So I brought Emily this, this present. 
And what you see here is there's, on one side of this candle, there's a drawing that my fiance made of one of the main characters in the book is this woman named Shambles. And she considers herself to be the patron saint of the hand job. So we made these little saint candles for it. <laughs> and I took the liberty, Emily, of, of writing this little patron saint of the hand job poem. We'll go here. I'm no poet, but we'll do our best to get through this. Shambles, patron saint of the hand job, I place my metaphorical penis in your metaphorical palm so as to remember that human beings are never truly lonely and a friendly yank is right around the corner. <laughs> Ensure each day possesses affection and human contact. Protect me from the assholes, the swine, the low-down conniving backstabbers, the bankers, the sociopaths, the right wing, the left wing, the mean streets, Wall Street, and probably a perverted uncle. <laughs> And with your supreme power, Shambles, I ask you to whisper in all our ears, you are not alone. You've never been alone. Here we are. Um, so my new book, Damascus, uh, follows about nine or ten characters. I wrote it to kind of be like one of those zany old Robert Altman scripts from the 1970s where you're following kind of eight, nine, ten heads around and these seemingly disparate storylines and you're not really sure how they're all going to kind of coalesce. Uh, but if I've done my job right, as we get deeper into the book, um, they all start to sort of resonate with one another. I also watched Nashville probably 40 or 50 times while I was writing this book. Don't, don't do that. Don't ever do that, especially with a film that you really dig, because then it's just fucked forever. So don't do that. Um, we're going to follow just one character. I'll, I'll read a short excerpt. His name is Rev. Uh, he's kind of a gutter punk bartender. And when we're going to pick the story up, uh, he's just gotten tattooed the night before, but the gentleman who was doing the tattooing had had two minutes to drink. Uh, and nobody can read what Rev's tattoo says. So he's a little bit miffed about that. Well, if it wasn't bad enough to gut through a week in which Rev had a tattoo engraved on his arm that nobody could read. Sexy time panda bear. Yankee says cock block. <laughs> Here he was now at the veterinarians, listening to a technician tell him that the lump in his boa constrictor's belly was Rev's own boxer shorts. Are you saying it ate my undies? Apparently, the tech said. Well, why would he eat my drawers? The technician chuckled at this. You know, I don't feel comfortable speaking on your snake's behalf. But I would assume that starvation played some minor role in the mystery. Do they eat things like this often? Rev asked. I can safely guarantee you that no, this does not happen often. He must have been famished. I'm pretty sure I fed him recently, Rev said. When? Rev paused at this. When had his boa constrictor? Rev called him his Bowie constrictor, hoping someday the snake would asphyxiate David Bowie for single-handedly emasculating rock and roll. <laughs> when had this snake last been fed? Two weeks and change, he guessed, but it was a solid question. One that might not matter all that much anyways, because the fascists wanted $900 to operate and get the boxers out of its digestive tract. 
Rev loved Bowie, but come on. 900 bucks? That was a lot of scratch to shell out on the snake's behalf. That was his savings, all of his savings. If his own parents, that family he yanked himself out of at 16 and never looked back, needed $900 for surgery, he wouldn't give them a dime. And Rev doesn't want you to know the particulars of his past, but you know the story without hearing it. You know about selfish, wanton, ludicrous parents who make their children's lives impossible uphill struggles. And you know the biological irony of alcoholism, how kids raised by drunkards go on to be drunkards even though they hate drunkards. So will he definitely die if we let him digest the boxers a naturel? Are you kidding me, the technician said. I am not kidding you, dude. <laughs> yes, he'll definitely die. I'm going to need to think this over for a minute, said Rev. Think it over. Your pet's going to die. Yeah, but I might die if I give you $900. You know, we have payment plans, the technician said. Just a second. I'm going to need to talk this over with myself. Maybe you should check with somebody else, the technician said. Then he counted to 20 and said to Rev, Hello, how's that conversation with yourself going? Pretty good for me, not so good for the snake. The technician shook his head. Man, you're really going to let your pet die? What can I say? We're both cold-blooded. Rev laughed and howled and said, you know, Bowie would have loved that one. Man, that snake had a superior sense of humor. <laughs> but what was this? What kind of stupefying dune of defamation swelled up in Rev right then? Why was Rev, who had proved immune to guilt and responsibility and liability, suddenly feeling like he was doing something wrong? He did tons of things wrong. Hell, he liked doing things wrong, found a contorted pride in flubs and blunders and contusions, liked to look at the scars on his body and remember all the things he'd done to earn them, fist fights, face plants, mild scrapes with neighborhood kids. But this, Letting Bowie die was something, apparently, that Rev considered wrong. Some secret code of conduct he wasn't aware of, stashed deep in his subconscious. He thought of a night at the bar last month. One of the regulars, Carla, sometimes carried a tiny dog in her purse that was no bigger than a burrito. People liked to pet him, feed him peanuts off the bar. He was sort of Damascus's unofficial mascot. But on that night, Carla started screaming out of nowhere. And people crowded around her, and Carla cried, and more people crowded, and she was yelling, and she was holding the tiny dog in her hands, limp and lifeless. It had suffocated in her purse, and she hadn't noticed. 
They all stood gawking at the dead thing. You know, Rev didn't need any help thinking the world was a heartless fiend. So why were all these examples of that clabbered truth circling around him like buzzards? The detail that bothered him the most was when Carla, still holding the lifeless thing, kept saying, what am I supposed to do with it? Where does it go? Where does it belong now? It was Rev who took it from her, brought the innocent thing into the office and wrapped it in a bar towel. He asked Carla if she wanted its body, but she said, Jesus, there's just no way. So he took the wrapped dog out back and put it in a dumpster, tried to summon some poetic words, but could only come up with this brusque eulogy. I'm sure you deserve better than this, pooch. Then he gave the dog a solemn nod and patted the side of the dumpster. He judged Carla that night, judged her alcoholic tunnel vision, judged her as inept and selfish. He couldn't do something so similar to Bowie. There wouldn't be any honor in this brand of apathy. No, walking away and letting his snake die was the sort of wrongness that didn't jibe with him. So he had to do the right thing. Begrudgingly, of course. I'm joking, dude, Rev said to the vet tech. Obviously, I'll shell out the bones to save my Bowie constrictor. Jesus, I mean, he's my pet after all. Give me some credit. He sounded pretty serious. No, I was just playing. I'm glad to hear it, the tech said. Me too, I guess, said Rev through gritted teeth. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. questions for anybody uh, either have it refer to uh, a specific meaning that we heard or something broad that you want all three of them to address. I don't know if anyone has any, any icebreakers. I know I have one, but go for it. Um, well, just because we were planning uh, before the readings, I'm just wondering, what was the difference for you in terms of writing a second book versus a first book? In terms of the creative process? I wrote my second book in kind of this um, incensed fever dream because I was having a really hard time getting my first book published. I mean, it was getting kicked all over Midtown Manhattan um, in this way that really kind of makes you doubt that you can even write a good, compelling book in the first place. Um, so I kind of wrote it with this big chip on my shoulder, being like, I'll show you, mister. I can write a good book. Um, so I think I wrote the whole thing in about, about 18 months. Um, the first one took me you know, about four years, and, and the third one took me about four years. But, but the middle one was had a little bit more of an attitude to it. Stephen, Trini, I don't know if you guys have had similar experiences that you were having an easier time or di most difficult time, right? From first to second. Um, my second book I spent years and years and years. So it's a little different. I mean, I, I spent longer on my second book than my first book. Interesting. Yeah, my books vary project to project. Some are more art-oriented and some are anthologies, and so they actually tend to alternate between making anthologies and different kinds of books in, in between my fiction books. So I usually have two or three projects going at any given time. And um, 
I don't know why, but that kind of keeps me working and, and they finish it all different times. <laughs> they're not in order. Or, mm -hmm. So that's fun for me. And I like, like working on it. I have a question for Stephen. Um, I was also in this case, but um, I just this quote on the back of the book is sort of like um, talking to me. It says, Beachy exalts and simultaneously deconstructs the tradition of the literary books. And I was just wondering if you had a response to this quote. And also, your relationship, because I just remember the J.T. Leroy thing was probably one of the biggest literary books that was uncovered by you. And I'm wondering if you had. Um, if you had that in mind when you were writing this? Um, well, of course, I'll never say that Jake is not a real person because he is a real person. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll insist on that because if I don't insist on that, who will? Um, <laughs> but certainly some of the issues that the book, that this book gets at about sort of identity and, and publicity and sort of playing with um, sort of different lines between um, fiction and, and sort of walking different paths through the willing suspension of disbelief, say. Um, and also different ways that, you know, there's stuff in here about multiple personality, which is something I've been very interested in for a long time that sort of had crossover with the J.T. Leroy thing. And all of that stuff sort of feeds into this book. And certainly J.T. Leroy, my experiences with the J.T. Leroy thing Yeah, yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about your experiences at, uh, in Iowa City? Survival, just a, a brief sort of sketch of what that was like at the workshop? Um, sure. Um, I mean, I was there in the late 80s, which, and I think it's very different now. I mean, if you want to know anything like now, what it was then. Um, I was an Iowa native, and also, and I have been, I was an undergrad. I grew up in Davenport. Oh, okay. Um, so I was an undergrad there, so my experience there was also very different from most of the people who came there from other places, and it was this very sort of new, intense experience or whatever, and I had been living there for a while. But, I mean, I didn't have the best time there, but part of that was, I think I was too young to really get that much out of it in some ways. I was kind of not mature enough, that makes sense. But it also was, I mean, in the late 80s, it was still, I have to say, kind of a weird, sexist, homophobic, and uh, probably racist environment in certain ways as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, most places were in the late 80s, right? but, but certainly the Henry Pickle were going to have to be So there it is in a nutshell. Um, <laughs> reading endorsement, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had some great teachers there who, who taught me a lot. Susan Dage was my teacher there, who's an incredible writer who writes a lot. Um, um, Frank Conroy was a great teacher. T. Cora got some boils and air in the Don't tell her I said that. Um, Josh, you, I was surprised when you said that uh, you spent so long on your books because they, uh, I feel like you have this, it feels kind of like fever dream, you know, you lock yourself in the bathroom, like, 
some pills and you like wrote it in this fever. Of check, check. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and so, but it, like considering you wrote it over such a long period of time, you know, eighteen months compared to whatever. Yeah. Weeks. Like it, it seems to hang together in this very like stream of consciousness way. And like, how do you? keep coming back to a project over a long period of time and give it that sort of immediacy that runs throughout? Yeah, that's a great question. If you agree you know, um, For one thing, I think it's just about finding different ways to tap into various regions of your imagination. I mean, that first kind of initial gust that you ride during the nascent drafts, one, two, and three, is a very different pleasure than when you get toward the end and you're nitpicking and, and manicuring and sequencing and doing all that sort of stuff. I just have to think of them as almost being completely independent arts from one another in order to keep doing it. Or I would quit at draft 10, or I would quit at draft 15. I mean, as an artist, how do you find the gusto to push through the book being pretty good and hopefully the book turns out to be really good if we do our job right? Yeah, editors help. Yeah. Editors are good. Emily's pretty smart. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> I would be curious to hear from each of you, and this is from this day. Um, so when you're having a new idea for a book or for a story, um, at this point, what form does it take? Do you start with a moleskin in your pocket? Do you start on a computer? Do you start with your iPhone? Like when you have these kernels of ideas, what is the first thing that you reach for in order to record them? Um, so no pen. Yeah, I take lots of, I use a lot of post-its. Um, I have like huge stacks of post-its. Like, you know, you know, I mean, I don't have different note-taking devices and jot down little phrases. And, um, and I come from a background in poetry, so I t tend to hear little phrases or a sentence here and there, and I'll jot it down and turn it into a story or a title or, you know. But um, then I just amass, <coughs> amass stories and pe little prose pieces for years, and then eventually I start thinking about the book so far. Right now, since I'm conceiving of a novel, it works a little differently because you kind of have like a lot of information about characters and whatnot in your head in the beginning, but you don't know how maybe it'll all pan out yet. Yeah. Um, so it probably varies so much with you guys. Yeah. Stephen, what about for you? Um, yeah, I also use a notebook. Um, I, I'm kind of a technophobe, I think, my Amish roots. I really do have Amish roots. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, yes. Um, I'm partial to these little notebooks that like, are sold to 12-year-old girls with like skulls and pink bows and stuff like that. 12-year-old girls with the best notebooks. <laughs> They're like really small and easy to carry around. Um, but yeah, I think like Trini, I tend to like the original kernels of something usually pop up while I'm in the middle of some other project, so it's usually just sort of a few notes, sentences that sort of make it into the notebook. And if they're good enough, they survive until I'm ready to get into it. What about you, Josh? I've got really bad insomnia, so I tend to write from about midnight till about five or six in the morning, five nights a week. Um, so I don't really know. Like it's, it's really just this. It's always at the laptop, but I just kind of just get in there and, and see what works. Insomnia gets such a bad rap, um, <laughs> but I, I really dig it. I mean, I, I have this theory that's based on no science at all, but that the gap between your conscious and your subconscious mind is, is a little bit smaller, because all of my like, zany premises always come at the you know, 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. No email, no 
no cell phone. That imagination of ours can get as reckless and as crazy as it wants to get, for sure. All right, we got a good swap. I like it. <laughs> Swapping's fun. Anyone else, or shall we, uh, shall we get the party started and have people chit chat and sign informally? All right, let's do that. Um, so, thank you again to all of our. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.